The Hamden County Sheriff's Office is more than law enforcement. We provide professional medical and mental health care during and post-incarceration, valuing wellness, treatment, and access to care. We offer part and full-time nursing positions with a less hectic pace, state pension, benefits, and potential retirement after 20 years. We walk with empathy, uplifting individuals and families. Join us. Make a difference. Visit our website for more. The Hamden County Sheriff's Office, not your average law enforcement agency. The ideas and opinions expressed in this show do not reflect the views of WHMP or Saga Communications. This show may contain subject matter not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I am no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept. Angela Davis. Hi, I'm Lisa Riley, and we're here each week to share stories and get educated in the criminal justice and prison reform movement, to know that failure isn't final, our past doesn't define us, and the reality of life, whether you're still behind the wall and the stigmas that surround those who have been impacted by the justice system, or if you're making your way back into the community and need resources and opportunities. So join us every week because this is The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. I am super excited to introduce our guest this week, Representative Lindsay Sabadosa of the 1st Hampshire District in Massachusetts. We have not had a representative from the House in the studio with us or on the show. We're very excited. Welcome to this week's The Hustler Files. Thank you so much for inviting me. So we have a few things we're going to unpack, um, some bills that you've been working on. But before we do that, since we have a little bit of a different listener base from some of the other radio shows that you've been part of over the last few years, why don't you give us a little bit of background on yourself? Sure. Well, uh, like you said, my name is Lindsay Sabadosa, and I am the state representative for the first time district in Massachusetts. The first Hampshire district is the Northampton area of the state, so the five college area. And I have been in office since 2019, currently serving in my third term. And each term is two, two years. years. Yes, that's right. So I was reading your bio. It's very diversified, but yet at the heart of it, and it you talk about this on your website, you really go back to being nine years old and organizing your first protest about the closing of your hometown library. Like, how do you do that at nine years old? Well, I grew up not very far from here in Westfield, Massachusetts, so just a few towns over. And, um, you know, I, I grew up in a household that was not always very calm. And my refuge was our local library. At the time, the, um, the Westfield Library also had a branch, which was at the high school, and it was open to the public after school hours and on the weekends. And it was a place that I spent a tremendous amount of time. I actually started volunteering there even at nine. I learned how to put books away. I learned about the Dewey Decimal System. I became really good friends with the librarians, and I helped uh, every Saturday. They would do a story hour, an arts and craft project for the kids. And I just loved being there because I love, first of all, I love reading, deeply, passionately love reading. And I love being surrounded by books and people who are curious and want to learn. And the library is just 
full of people like that. And so it was really devastating when the city of Westfield decided due to budget cuts that they were going to close this library that was a tremendous resource. And Westfield, if you know it at all, is a pretty big community, um, just land area-wise. It's a big community. And it's divided into the northern and southern parts of the city, which is split in half by the river. And so we lived on the north side and the sort of traditional beautiful Antheneum that everybody kind of knows downtown Westfield is on the south side. And as a kid, I had no ability to get there. We don't have, there was no public transportation. It was probably a four or five mile walk and it wouldn't have been safe to do anyway. So shutting down this branch really meant something, I think, to the whole community. And we felt like it needed to stay open because they weren't paying attention to the kids on the other side of town. And so we organized a protest march through the city of Westfield. We ended up at the main branch library and the mayor came and was there to hear our concerns. And we didn't win. The city closed the library, but it really did speak to me and made me understand that when there's something you care about, you have to do something. You can't just kind of sit back and go, oh, well, I guess the numbers are the numbers. I think even today, I would say they probably shouldn't have closed that library. I think those libraries are, are really critical. I mean, here in Northampton, we have multiple libraries, and that's a blessing for the community. And you see people showing up. I brought my own daughter for years to the same story hours and arts and crafts projects that they host. And I think bring together people in a way that not a lot of other community spaces are able to do. Well, based on your resume, it doesn't look like what I would presume a typical legislator resume would look like. You've been an entrepreneur. You lived in Europe for many years with your own business. And you don't have a law degree, correct? I don't have a law degree, no. So as I'm reading through your resume, I'm like, wow, she is so in tune with the rest of the world. And your, your life has never just been linear. Your journey has been sort of traversed in a bunch of different directions. But was there somewhere else in the back of your mind that you were always like, I want to go back to that nine-year-old mindset of doing something to make change for the better? I think the idea of making change for the better was always there. I'm not sure the idea of running for office was always <laughs> there. Uh, my grandfather was actually the first person who told me I should run for office. I was in kindergarten, and he said, you really like telling people what to do. You should become mayor now. <laughs> to be clear, I never want to be mayor. <laughs> um, but it was very sweet that that was what he thought. But I um, I do think the idea of change, uh, of trying to change society and our community for the better is something that resonates with me. And um, it certainly was why I ran for this office. I really felt like state government was the sweet spot. Um, municipal government is hard and tackles a lot of issues that really affect everyone's daily life. And I, I have great appreciation for that. And state government, in some ways, is able to do that. But we're also, at the same time, able to tackle much bigger issues, um, and particularly with the direction our country is headed, where <laughs> a lot is being pushed back on the states. We have more and more of an opportunity to make a real impact, although it would be nice if the federal government sent funding to go along with that. 
Yes, I'm sure it would. For anybody listening, one of the reasons we invited Representative Sabadosa today is because she is the proponent of three bills that we're going to touch upon um, that do have very close ties to our subject matter here on The Hustler Files. And one of them I want to jump in with is she is the the proponent of a bill, um, House Bill 1755, which is an act to track the implementation of the Brangan ruling. And so, Representative Sabadosa, why don't you give us a little bit of background on what that bill is all about? Sure. The legislation uh, sort of picks up on a ruling by the Supreme Judicial Court here in Massachusetts, which said that in setting bail, a judge had to take into account the economic circumstances of the defendant. So if a defendant works a minimum wage job, setting bail that is $5,000 is going to be completely unfeasible for that person to pay, right? Now, uh, if they work a job where they make 200000 a year, that $5,000 bail might not really be a big deal. But for a lot of people, it is. And so the, the Supreme Judicial Court said the justices have to do this. And Massachusetts has, uh, the, the state legislature, has really tried to support that in its legislation with the Criminal Justice Reform Act of 2018. The problem is that we don't know if it's actually being implemented because nobody is tracking the data. And one of the things that becomes very hard as legislators is for us to understand if we need to make a change. We often hear anecdotes, but anecdotes aren't real data. You know, we want to make sure that this is happening across the board, or maybe it's just happening in some specific counties. Um, So the bill just says, give us the data so that we can figure out if we need to go further than what the ruling said. So how do you get a courtroom to track that data? Because every judge is going to implement a different bail number based on the entire circumstance of the person standing in front of them. Right. Well, there's a number of factors. So first of all, I mean, you could just say, like, for for this crime, this was what the bail was set. These were the mitigating circumstances. Um, and this is what the defendant purported their income to be. I mean, that, I think, is some really simple metrics that we could use. We do understand criminal justice is very hard for the reason that you just said. There is, It's very hard to have apples-to-apples comparisons because every case is so different. But I think fundamentally, if we can say, all right, someone who's charged with, um, let's say, domestic violence, bail is set at this amount here, um, there were no mitigating factors reported by the court. In this case over here, bail was set at X amount of dollars, also no mitigating factors. That gives us some metric for comparison. I think we're looking more for sort of ranges than we are for specific uh, bail numbers, if that makes sense. Has the subject come up by maybe some of your peers that this data could reveal some very inappropriate swaying of how people are are given bail requirements? I'm mean, trying to be gentle in how I say that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's what we suspect. I think we suspect that there are other factors at play besides the financial status of defendants. I think we believe that there are racial components for sure, um, that certain crimes are, whether they're meant to be or not, penalized more harshly, and that 
that this is different from county to county, which is really, I think, where the legislature can play a role. Because if for some reason someone who is charged with the exact same crime in Hampshire County and Suffolk County receives two different amounts of bail, even though their economic status is the same, then I think that raises some questions as to implementation of the of the ruling. Again, without the data, we can't know that. Now, the sort of stopgap right now is what the bail funds are telling us, because there are bail funds throughout Massachusetts that are trying to get people who have the possibility of being released on bail out of jail. So we get some information from them, but it's imperfect because they don't have unlimited resources. They can't bail everyone out. And so they are sort of targeting uh, certain amounts and certain counties where they're, where they're located and doing the most work. On our show, we had a guest from California who was at 16 incarcerated for sexual activity. And luckily he became exonerated. But when he told us his bail number, and this was 2002, I believe, it was, we almost fell off our chairs. It was um, $1.125 million was his bail. I mean, his mother had to sell her house and her car to even start to gather the funds needed, and it wasn't enough. So I'm very interested in this bill because I think that it's not equal, in my opinion, from the stories I read. And I definitely think it's not equal from state to state. And I think that this legislation would play a role in that ongoing debate within the state about um, dangerousness hearings, which you see come up time and time again. Um, So these are hearings where the prosecutor can say, I believe that this defendant is particularly dangerous to the community and therefore there should be increased bail or there shouldn't be bail at all. This person should be held until trial and they're, you know, that's, I think, across the board, a little problematic, and there are probably cases in which that is warranted. However, we have seen dangerousness hearings happen more and more often, particularly after the Bringen ruling, where they weren't allowed, or they should not have been allowed, rather, to impose bail, like you were just saying, you know, in the millions of dollars, without considering the defendant's status. So we're going to need to take a quick break. And uh, Representative Sabadosa, when we come back, I'd like to jump into your other two bills, both of which have to do with parole. And uh, I think it's a really interesting conversation. So if you can stay with us for the next segment and listeners grab another cup of coffee, you're listening to this week's The Hustler Files. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work an active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. Welcome back to this week's The Hustler Files. I'm Lisa Riley, and if you're just joining us, we're here in studio with Massachusetts House Representative Lindsay Sabadosa from the 1st Hampshire District in Massachusetts. We've been discussing some of her petitions that do involve the criminal reform, criminal justice piece of of what we talk about every week. And once again, Representative Sabadosa, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, so let's jump into two of the bills that you're supporting, and I'm putting them together 
and you can take them one bite at a time because they're very similar. One is uh, House Bill number 2398, which is an act to promote equitable access to parole. And the other is House Bill 2397, which is an act relative to parole review for aging incarcerated people. So let's start with the first bill. Why the reissuance of a bill for just in general parole rules in Massachusetts? So I'm glad that you've picked these two pieces of legislation because these are both bills that I didn't write, Um, but they are bills that I was asked to file on behalf of incarcerated individuals in different prisons here in Massachusetts. So the first piece of legislation regarding equitable parole is actually um, a piece related to joint venture theory. So what is joint venture theory? Under joint venture theory, uh, an individual, or sometimes referred to as felony murder, an individual can be charged with the exact same crime as the principal perpetrator, even though they did not commit the crime but were present at the crime scene or were some way involved. So oftentimes people in gangs are charged with this. So one person commits a murder, everybody in the gang is arrested. Um, And they can be charged with murder and are often sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So what that means uh, is that the whole theory of proportionality and sentencing, so the idea that you should be sentenced based on how complicit you were in the crime, is completely thrown out of the window. And here in Massachusetts, we have many people, hundreds of people, who are currently in prison for murder who have never actually murdered anyone. So basically, it's that parent in our ears that used to say, you know, if you're in the getaway car and you're driving, even though you didn't commit the crime, you're still going to be punished. Right. And so the bill doesn't say that you shouldn't be punished at all. If you are driving the getaway car and you know that your friend went in a store and murdered someone, I don't think there's many people who would argue you shouldn't be punished at all. This bill, though, asks, should you be punished for murder if you didn't murder someone, or should you be punished for driving the getaway car? Now, I would argue that if we are going to rely on proportionality in sentencing, which the legal system has said for years we should, then you should be punished for driving the getaway car, and the person who committed the murder should be punished for committing the murder. Um, So the bill is, in a lot of ways, almost like a second-look bill that says, let's go back and look at these cases. We're all parties. We're punished in exactly the same way and make sure that there is proportionality in sentencing. Now, much like the first bill we talked about, this is building off a Supreme Judicial Court ruling because the Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts said, no, you can't use this theory. There There has to be mens rea, right? There has to be the intent to commit a crime. And if your intent was not to do so, then you can't be punished for that. So the joint venture theory, which came out of English common law but has been eliminated in almost every country besides the United States at this point, really has always relied on this idea of what is the intent. Uh, Somehow we've gotten away from that, though. And that bill tries to put us back on the right, what I would argue is the right track. Fascinating. I wasn't aware that that's really what the bill was talking about because I was reading through it and I'm not an attorney, I'm not a legislator, so I was like, oh, this is really interesting. They're changing the language, but I wasn't really sure for what. So yep. thank you for clarifying that, not just for me, but for our listeners. And I should, if I could, if I could, there's a group out of MCI Norfolk, although it's expanding to other prisons, called We Are Joint Venture. Um, you can actually find them on social media, and uh, they are the incarcerated individuals who have been sentenced under joint venture theory, and they're trying to 
share their stories and what really happened and why they've been incarcerated. And so this is part of a much larger movement. And I was actually just last week in New Orleans at a, at a conference around criminal justice reform. And this is one of the things that we were talking about and how this is sort of taking root in several states, this kind of um, unfair sentencing. And I'm sure down south, it's probably a very big conversation It is. It's really fascinating to see how different states are handling this. Well, that then is our segue into the other piece of legislation that you are championing. (laughs) And this is the Free Incarcerated Elders. And this actually has gotten a lot of press locally. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what this bill is and why you're passionate about it. So this bill also came to me from um, an incarcerated individual, I believe at NCI Concord, who said, and, and this is not an argument that's new by any stretch, but said, you know, the reason Massachusetts has so many incarcerated individuals who are serving long sentences who are very old is because we don't really do a very good job with parole. And if you look at the statistics around parole, that's that's very true. We tend to almost have a second trial for individuals at their parole hearing. So even though the crime was committed 40 years ago, when you go to parole, it is basically once again that trial. And for people with really long sentences, a lot of the things that parole asks for, so like certain programming and different things, they're just not available to people with long sentences because the prisons only make those programs available to people who they think are actually leaving. So a lot of times those parole hearings are really just setting people up for failure. And and you'll see individuals decide to not even go to parole because they're so dismayed at what their opportunity to get parole might be. So with elder parole, though, we, we do see that when elders are released from prison, the recidivism rates are extraordinarily low. And the cost of incarcerating people into their golden years is very, very high. Um, We are basically incarcerating people who belong at this point in nursing homes. And I've uh, spent a lot of time touring the prisons in Massachusetts and visiting the the health departments there, if that's what they can be called. And And I say that only because they're supposed to sort of be like infirmaries, but they've really become nursing homes with people who can't get around on their own. Prisons were never meant to handle situations like this. And so the idea is that when people hit a certain age, if they've served a a portion of their sentence already, there should be a reexamination if the incarceration even makes sense. I don't think that this is really a get-out-of-jail-free card. I think that it's kind of inserting some logic back into the system. The United States really does have the longest sentences in the world for incarcerated individuals, and we sometimes forget that. You know, there are people who think life in prison doesn't mean life in prison, but I can assure you life in prison in Massachusetts really does mean life in prison. But, you know, when someone is 75 or 80 or 85, does it make sense to keep them in prison? I'm not really sure that it does. That makes me think of an interesting story. So my oldest daughter is a medical professional physician. When she was doing her internship outside of Boston in um, internal medicine, And she had to, as part of her internship, go work at one of the local prison facilities. And I never forget her calling me and saying after that she had treated an older gentleman, quite old, who was in jail for murder, serving a life sentence. And he 
had cancer and he wasn't going to live very long. And he was talking to her and they were having a nice conversation. And she called me and she said, Mama, she said, I don't get it. She said, this man shouldn't be here. He's paid his dues. He, you know, is very ill. He, you know, and she said, in talking to him, you never would have known that he was a hardened criminal. And I was like, wow, what what a lesson at such an early age in your 20s to be given, you know, especially from the physician level. Yep. Yeah, and and I think you know we there are so many of these cases, right? Like people who have ALS and are in prison, and what does a prison do with that? And how does how does one get treatment in prison? And I I think it it really is the two sides of the coin. It's wrong for the person who is incarcerated. It's also impossible for our prison system to become a nursing facility or to offer that level of care. And the the workforce shortage that we're seeing on the outside of prisons exists inside as well. So the legislation is saying that this would be parole eligibility for people age 55 and older who have served at least half or 15 years of their sentence. Yes. Do you have a number in Massachusetts how many people fit that model? It's an ever-changing number, but we are talking about hundreds of people, not thousands. Fascinating conversation, Representative Sabadosa, and I love hearing all of these pieces because they all tie together in one way or another. So hopefully you'll come back in the future and maybe you can give us some updates on these. And my final question, and I ask all my guests this, and I don't give you a heads up because I'm a believer we all have life assignments and they can change. Mm -hmm. But if I was to say to you, what do you think your life assignment is? Oh, um, what do I think my life assignment is? And you I throw this at the very end of the interview. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be any fun if I put it in the beginning. <laughs> no, because we'd spend 25 minutes trying to figure out what the answer is. I think my life assignment is probably around trying to create more equity in the world that we live in now. I don't know exactly in what ways that will come up, but I do feel like that roots all of my work. I mean, if you look at the bills I file, they're often very diverse, but I can always find a thread that connects them all back, and I do think it is rooted in that idea. It sort of goes back to the library conversation, too. Libraries are a great source of equity. They're good equalizers. So admirable and so impactful. And I have a feeling that you're going to keep tying all those threads together as you continue on your uh, legislative career. Thank you again for joining us today. Listeners, don't go anywhere because we still have to wrap up this week with the Hustler Files. So uh, we'll be right back. Hello, this is Patrick Kaling, Sheriff of Hampshire County. This year, my office received the prestigious Fatherhood Award from the Children's Trust, a state child abuse prevention agency, for our work with the Nurturing Fathers program. Because of our work, Hampshire County has many more fathers with a deeper understanding of the important role they play in the lives of their children and their families. We are proud of our partnership with the Children's Trust and firmly believe that strong, safe families help build strong, safe communities. If you're interested in joining our award-winning team, visit our website, hampshiresheriffs.com, or submit an application online, or call 413-584-5911 and ask for our HR department. We are back, 
And this week's thoughts come from one of our favorite weekly publications, The Daily Coach. Find something bigger than yourself and get in touch with it every single day. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. Surround yourself with people who remind you of your future, not with those who remind you of your past. Be a better friend, partner, and teammate. There is no better use of a life than to be attentive to other people's needs. Realize many times what people need most is not a brilliant mind that speaks, but a special heart that listens. The world is waiting for what you have to offer. Always be kinder than necessary. During the unique moment in time, let's dare to dream the impossible dream as change agents. Let's dare to stand out in the crowd, dare to think differently and be uncommon. And one of the greatest joys of leadership is helping others achieve what they never thought possible. And that's a wrap on another Hustler Files for this week. You can find us on the whmp.com podcast page and on any of your favorite podcast sites. Please have a wonderful week ahead. And remember, don't be ashamed of your story because it will inspire others. See you next week right here on The Hustler Files. 